Today's reading is Genesis 50, 14 through 21. After burying his father, Joseph returned to Egypt together with his brothers, and all the others had gone with him to bury his father. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, What if Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrongs we did to him? So they sent word to Joseph, saying, Your father left these instructions before he died. This is what you're to say to Joseph. I ask you to forgive your brothers the sins and the wrongs they committed in treating you so badly. Now, please forgive the sins of the servants of the God of your father. When their message came to him, Joseph wept. His brothers then came and threw themselves down before him. We're your slaves, they said. But Joseph said to them, Don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good, to accomplish what's now being done, the saving of many lives. So then don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. He reassured them and spoke kindly to them. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, This morning, I'm not preaching. That doesn't mean I didn't work all week, because you think I only work one day a week. But we do have uh, what you might call a guest preacher, uh, but not really. You hear this fellow almost every single Sunday morning. He's up here talking about the life of the church, announcements. It's Josiah Lewinberger, who's the director of university ministries at ECC, and the college students know him quite well. Uh, But we're really pleased to have Josiah speak this morning. Um, It is summer, and there's going to be a lot more speakers throughout the summer, so you'll get a break from me. I know that'll be great. Uh, But it's great to have Josiah. So uh, welcome, Josiah. We don't usually clap at the end of sermons, but can we clap at the beginning? Yeah. (laughs) Thanks so much. It's so great to be here. I just feel privileged to be able to encourage y'all with God's word this morning. Uh, you know, it's funny. I work with the college students, and when we were ending the school year, one of our students said to me, Josiah, when are you going to get to preach at big church? And uh, I thought that was really funny. It's kind of cool. We have a lot of the kids who are usually in underground here with us this morning. Guys, I see you out there. And I just want to say I'm right there with you. Here we are in big church. How cool is that? Um, I don't know if anybody can relate to this, but I just love watching races. It doesn't really matter what it is. I can watch NASCAR. Maybe it's cross-country skiing on TV, um, motocross. I don't really care. I just love watching races. And yesterday, I was really excited to watch the Belmont Stakes. I don't know if any of you follow horse racing at all, but this was the race where California Chrome had a shot at the Triple Crown. This horse had won the Kentucky Derby. He'd won the Preakness. And so he's coming in to the Belmont Stakes outside of New York City, ready to win the Triple Crown. And I was just so excited. There hadn't been a Triple Crown winner since 1978. That was, uh, yeah, that was a few years before I was born. Anyway, so... I shouldn't even have said that. Shame on me. And so this horse was poised to win the Triple Crown. And there have been 12 other horses that were in this similar position to win the Triple Crown since 1978, but they all failed to do it. But if you knew anything, 
man, this was the horse who was going to do it. He was so strong. He had this cool nasal strip. He was ready to go. And, uh, so it came time for this race and my wife made this great stir fry for dinner and we sat down on our couches with our stir fry and, uh, we were watching the race and it started and they're just out of the gates and California Chrome was in a pretty good position for like the first half of the race. And then like, we were so excited here for the second half of the race to see him strike. We even like put down our stir fry. And so we're up out of our seats yelling at the TV and our puppies barking at us and, uh, we kept waiting for this horse to make his move. And we're like, go, go, go. And the announcers were like, California Chrome, getting ready to make his move. And the move never happened. It was the last quarter mile. And all the other horses are like rushing. And California Chrome just stayed the same. And we were just devastated. I'd bet more money than I ever have on a horse race on this. Zero dollars and zero cents. Um, and this horse just totally... It was such a disappointment. Everybody wanted to see it happen, and it was really funny. When the race was over, the cameras were focused on the guy who won, and you couldn't tell if it was the guy who won the race or California Chrome and his jockey who had lost the race because the guy who won had this bittersweet expression where he was like, you know what, I'm glad I won the Belmont Stakes, but there was this dream that we were all kind of hoping was going to happen, and it just wasn't fulfilled. Uh, he even wanted his horse... <laughs> You know, there was part of him that kind of wanted his horse to lose. He would have loved to see California Chrome win the Triple Crown. And I think that we can all say there have been times in life where we've kind of had a similar feeling, where we had this hope, this dream that we wanted to be fulfilled, that we felt like God had even given us. And it came down to the circumstances of our lives and things hadn't actually worked out the way that we'd hoped they would. Um, let me tell you a funny story. You may be surprised to hear this from me as your college pastor, but I'm not somebody who particularly enjoyed college. You know, that's nothing against the college that I went to. It was a great place. But you meet some students who are trying to find a way to hang around for that fifth year or sixth year. And then you meet other students who are like begging their parents to take a semester off. And I was much more the latter than the former. Uh, for the first two and a half years of college, I felt really unsettled. And a lot of that had to deal with the fact that the way that I'd anticipated things going, I felt like God had put a call on my life to be this certain person whose life was going to go this way. And I had my dream of how God was going to work those things out. And funnily enough, my plan was different from God's plan. Things didn't exactly work out the way that I'd hoped. And uh, those first two and a half years were extremely difficult for me. I have to say that after two and a half years, things got significantly better because I started dating my beautiful wife then. Um, guys, that's not to say that dating a beautiful woman will solve all your problems, but it worked out really well for me. <laughs> you know, when it came time for those years I spent in college should be done, I looked back and I could see that God was present with me throughout that experience, even though it was really difficult and very painful at times. And I have to be honest with you, though I learned a lot of great lessons in college, man, I sure have learned those lessons again since I've graduated. So many times the way that I thought God would work out the circumstances of my life as I followed him faithfully and genuinely striving to live according to how I felt like he was leading, those plans ran into brick walls. And that was extremely difficult for me to think about. How is God in this situation? Who is he? How is he working in the midst of this when I can't exactly see what's going on? 
So, uh, as you know, we're in this sermon series right now where we're talking about characters from the Old Testament. And when Bob said to me, Josiah, you can pick any character you want to, I was really excited to choose Joseph. Um, Joseph is a character whose story really resonates with me in that God had a promise for his family. He had a promise for Joseph of what he was going to accomplish in them and through them. But when we look at the way this story worked out, this uncertain story, this chaotic story, so many twists and turns, uh, promises that seemingly were to be denied, but God was present in this situation, I think it speaks a lot to us in our lives today, where we may not exactly know exactly how God is going to work things out, how his sovereign hand is going to work in the midst of our stories. And so I'm really looking forward to working through this story with you all. And so the story of Joseph picks up in Genesis chapter 37. And if you know anything about the story of Joseph, um, we, we see that Joseph's story started out with this young man with great promise, but the promise didn't exactly begin with him. It began with his family. If you remember Bob's sermon at the beginning of this series, Joseph was the son of Jacob. Jacob was the son of Isaac. Isaac was the son of Abraham. And so Joseph comes at the end of this family of the patriarchs, as we call them, where God had bound himself to this people, that he would bless them, that they might be a blessing to the nations. And so when we come to Joseph, we've seen this family that God has promised that he's bound himself to, but they're incredibly dysfunctional. This family of people who are unfaithful, uh, who sin, who turn against each other, who harm each other, but God somehow stays in their story. God is going to be faithful to his promises in the midst of their sin, in the midst of their uncertain stories. And so we come to Joseph, the youngest son of Jacob. God has chosen him outside of the normal tradition, the birth order. And Joseph is to carry on this blessing, this blessing that God has promised the nation of Israel to be a blessing to the nations. And so Joseph has all this promise. He has these dreams of who he's to be. God would make him a leader over his people. But here's the problem with Joseph. We often look at his life and judge Joseph's character at the beginning by who he was at the end. And I think that's a huge mistake because when we see Joseph at the beginning, he was a pretty arrogant little fella. Um, The story of Joseph actually begins with Joseph coming to his father, tattling on his brothers. Joseph gave his father a bad report of his brother's behavior in the field, tending his father's sheep. And so here's Joseph, the favored son, coming and tattling on his brothers. Joseph has this coat to show everyone that he's the chosen son. And Joseph isn't humble. He flaunts this coat. He's wearing it in front of his brothers, letting them know that his status is special. And so Joseph has these dreams from God, even telling him who he would become. But Joseph doesn't have, he doesn't have the humility to recognize that maybe his brothers, who aren't that fond of him anyways, to begin with, probably don't really care to hear that one day Joseph foresees them bowing down to him. That's not going to go over well. And so we come to this twist in the plot where Joseph is sent out to his brothers. His probably his father probably wants to see if Joseph will give him another report of how his brothers are really acting in the field. Here he is, our goody-goody little brother. And so Joseph comes to his brothers out in the field. And it's not exactly a surprise that his brothers don't receive him with open arms, but the way that they do receive him is absolutely shocking. Joseph comes to his brothers 
And they're originally plotting, what can we do to this dreamer? They come up with this plan to murder him. They've had it up to here with Joseph, and they want to do everything they can to stop him from ruling over them. And so they come up with this plan to murder him. But some of the brothers are like, man, this plan is taking it too far. Let's throw him in this pit. And eventually this group of Midianites come, people from this region. They're coming through on their way to Egypt, and his brothers sell him into slavery. And this is one of those times where we can read a Bible story, and we can say, yeah, Joseph's brother sold him into slavery. This is a huge deal. His brothers sold him into slavery. They sold him into slavery. These were the people that God had promised with him that he would bless them as a nation. This family would be a blessing to the world. And here are these brothers taking their youngest brother and selling him into slavery. That is a direct turning of the back against God's plan. God's words of promise to them. And so they sell Joseph into slavery. He's out of the picture. This is not the way that we saw this story going after God's initial promises, is it? And so Joseph is sold in Egypt to the house of Potiphar, the captain of Pharaoh's guard. And what we read next in the story is pretty much just as shocking as the fact that they sold him. Listen to this. This is Genesis 39, verses 1 through 6. Now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt. Potiphar, an Egyptian who was one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard, brought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him there. The Lord was with Joseph and he prospered and he lived in the house of his Egyptian master. When his master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord gave him success in everything he did, Joseph found favor in his eyes and became his attendant. Potiphar put him in charge of his household and he entrusted to his care everything he owned. From the time he put him in charge of his household And of all that he owned, the Lord blessed the household of the Egyptian because of Joseph. The blessing of the Lord was on everything Potiphar had, both in the house and in the field. So he left in charge of Joseph's care everything he had with Joseph in charge. He did not concern himself with anything except the food he ate. That is not what I expected to read after hearing that this young man had been sold into slavery. God puts him in the house of Potiphar. God is present with him. We see that repeatedly throughout the story of Joseph. And God was with Joseph. Though Joseph came into this as an arrogant young man who thought he knew how his circumstances were going to play out to be this ruler over his brothers, to be this leader for his people. God humbled Joseph. We need to know that Joseph spent 10 years in the house of Potiphar, and he was probably a radically different person by the time he left than when he was first there. Though Joseph would have been arrogant, he would have come to have seen gradually throughout this time that God was over his situation, that God was in charge, and he, was gonna, he knew what he was doing. God was in the midst of this circumstance of Joseph's life, even if Joseph couldn't see it. God was present with him, and he was over his circumstances. And the next thing that we read after this story of Joseph flourishing in the house of Potiphar is another crazy twist in this chaotic plot. Um, So Joseph, in a circumstance where his temptation is almost more than he can bear. Joseph maintains his integrity. He doesn't compromise. And as a direct result of that, he ends up in prison. Uh, He's imprisoned as a result of being faithful, maintaining his integrity, 
in the place that the Lord has put him. And so let's read what happens next. This is Genesis 39, verses 20 through 23. Joseph's master took him and put him in prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. But while Joseph was there in the prison, the Lord was with him. He showed him kindness and granted him favor in the eyes of the prison warden. So the warden put Joseph in charge of all of those held in the prison. He was made responsible for all that was done there. The warden paid no attention to anything under Joseph's care because the Lord was with Joseph and he gave him success in whatever he did. And so Joseph ends up imprisoned as a result of maintaining his integrity. How can you possibly maintain hope in this situation? But God absolutely thrives Joseph in prison. God puts him there and he uses him there. In the worst situation, God is present with Joseph and he's working out his will for his life. This is incredible. God imprisons him and this isn't something where Joseph has his hands crossed and God is unable to use him. God has him in prison. Usually the way you develop a prison warden isn't by taking a prisoner and putting them in a place of authority. But Joseph comes into this prison and he totally transforms this place as a result of God working through him. Joseph benefits the people who God has put him in their lives as a result of God's presence with him and working through him. And so... Joseph's in prison for about two years. And during this time, there's a cupbearer to the king with him. How sweet of a job is that? Okay, here's a million dollars. All you have to do is hand the king his cup. That's not a bad gig, guys. And so Joseph is in prison with the cupbearer to the king. And Joseph interprets this cupbearer's dream, uh, a dream telling the cupbearer that he would be liberated from prison soon that he would be back in Pharaoh's service. So Joseph interprets his dream, and this guy gets out of prison, he's back in Pharaoh's service, and he totally forgets about Joseph. But after two years, this Pharaoh, uh, the king of Egypt, has this really troubling dream. And so he's telling all of his priests, he's telling these um, soothsayers what his dream was about. They're trying to interpret it for him, and no one can figure out what it's about. And so Joseph's... uh, Pardon me, the Pharaoh tells his cupbearer, and the cupbearer is like, look, I don't know what your dream's about, but I know this guy named Joseph, and he interpreted my dream. And the Pharaoh's probably like, oh, where'd you know him? He's like, well, I met him in prison. It's really funny how this uh, conversation comes about before the cupbearer reminds the priest, uh, the Pharaoh, how he met Joseph. He's like, today I am reminded of my shortcomings. So I met him in prison when you put me there. And so he tells him about Joseph. And he brings Joseph out of prison. And so Joseph is there. He's in front of the Pharaoh. The Pharaoh tells him his dream and Joseph interprets it for him because God has given him this gift, this ability to interpret dreams. And he tells the Pharaoh, look, after seven years of plenty, there are going to be seven years of famine. You need to prepare yourself for this. And he gives the Pharaoh his plan of how he thinks that should best happen. And so Joseph lays it out before the Pharaoh and Pharaoh's like, that's an awesome plan. What should we do? How can we implement this? And he's like, well, you seem like a pretty good guy to do it. And so he calls Joseph out of prison into his service as his right man, right hand man to manage the crops of Egypt, that they might be a people who would not experience uh, death and destruction as a result of this lack of resources. Imagine how Pharaoh's council must have thought about this. So Pharaoh comes to them. So there's going to be this famine. 
but I have a plan. Here's what we're going to do. I've got this great guy to, to, uh, to carry out this plan. And his counsel is like, so who is he? Like, which one of us is it going to be? And he's like, actually, it's this guy my cupbearer met in prison. I imagine they were just shocked. The twists and turns of Joseph's life are so hard to believe. It's just absolutely amazing the way that God worked in this man's story. And so during those seven years, Joseph manages through the abilities that God has given. He manages the nation's resources with prowess. These people save enough grain that they can not only take care of themselves, but they can take care of the people in the region around them when the famine comes. And so two years into this famine, the story takes just the craziest plot turn. And Joseph's brothers show up on the doorstep of the granary, lacking food and need. And something you need to know is when Joseph's brothers came, they didn't recognize Joseph. Joseph was only 17 when his brothers sold him into slavery, and they were significantly older than him. And the Egyptians had some traditions that would have distinguished them from the Israelites. Joseph's brothers would have been coming in there looking like Duck Dynasty characters, you know? They've never shaved. They've got these massive beards and long hair. And the Egyptians, they shaved their heads. They shaved their faces. So they wouldn't have recognized Joseph. The family resemblance probably um, would have been indistinguishable with him looking so radically different in appearance. And so Joseph's brothers come to him in this great need. And I think the way Joseph handles this situation is very wise. Um, He allows them to purchase the grain, but he gives them this series of tests over a drawn out period of time to really make sure that his brothers have changed. To see if this time he's been separated from them has made them repentant. That they're a group of people now who will care more for each other. They'll care more for their father than they will for themselves. Uh, A people who are repentant for what they've done. And so he puts them through this series of tests to test their allegiance to themselves, uh, to test their allegiance to each other and to their father. And so after two years of this testing, Jacob finally, or Joseph finally feels like he can reveal to them who he is. And it's this climax of the story that's just been building to where joseph comes to his brothers and he reveals his identity to them and i just love the way this story comes together listen here this is genesis 45 verses 4 through 8 then joseph said to his brothers come close to me when they had done so he said i am your brother joseph the one you sold into slavery in Egypt. And now do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. For two years now there has been famine in the land and for the next five years there will not be plowing and reaping. But God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So then, it was not you who sent me here, but God. He made me a father to Pharaoh, lord of his entire household, and ruler of all Egypt. So Joseph's story, completely out of control. This chaotic story of uncertain events, these twists and turns. How could God possibly be fulfilling his will in the midst of all these things going wrong? All of this sin against him. All of these logistical nightmares that are just not lining up with the way things would need work to work out for God's will to be fulfilled on this man, on this family, come together. It's just amazing to look at the way in which God was present in this story. God shows up. 
And God fulfills his covenant promises. When we look to this story, we remember God's covenant with Abraham. God spoke to them these words, I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. This promise that God had extended to this family It looked like there was no possible way that it could ever be fulfilled, but God was present in this situation. God was providential over the life of Joseph. God would be faithful to his word no matter what. No sin could stop this. God was going to fulfill his plan. He was going to fulfill his promise to these people, to this family, and to the nations. God blessed Israel, Joseph's dysfunctional family, the very brothers who sold him into slavery. God blessed them, it seems, not just in spite of their sin, but even as a direct result of their sin. God blessed the one these brothers hated. God blessed him, and he in turn blessed those who sinned against him. God even blessed Egypt. This was a godless nation. These people were outside of the covenant community of faith. God blessed them through Joseph, providing for their welfare throughout this famine, throughout their time of need, by putting Joseph in a position to use his God-given abilities and gifts to lead them in a way where God would be able to provide for them and for other nations. And so we see throughout this story that Joseph was really a vessel through which God worked in order to accomplish his purposes. And nothing was going to stop that. Not the sin of others against him. Potiphar's wife leading him into the situation where his integrity would be compromised and then putting him in jail as a result. Not Joseph's brother sinning against him. And not even logistical impossibilities. How else does a shepherd boy from obscure Canaan end up as Pharaoh's right-hand man. God did this in the story of Joseph, and God can do this. God was present with him all throughout his life, and God acted providentially throughout it. You know, something you need to know about me is I'm from a really small town in western Pennsylvania, one of those one-stop-like kind of towns that I imagine a few of you are probably originally from. And I was an athlete in high school and I had this coach and he just loved to tell us stories the day before meets to get us motivated. I was a track and field runner. And one of his favorite, to give you an idea of how much of a, this guy was just a go-getter. I remember one time we were on the bus going to a meet and he was all fired up. Ah, this team's a bunch of eyes. We need to be about we. And he said, you know what? I don't want any eyes on this team. The only eye I want to see is the eye of the tiger. And uh, like, I don't know where he came up with this stuff. It was great. But one of his favorite stories that he would tell us is he would say, he would sit us down. He'd say, let me tell you a story about a little girl in lane eight. And if you know anything about track and field, when it comes to a race, there are eight lanes on the track. And the best runners are always going to be in the middle of the track, maybe in lanes three, four, or five. And if you're trying to pick the winner of the race, those are the lanes you want to go with. The best runners are not usually in lane one or two or in seven or eight. And so he would say, let me tell you a story about a girl in lane eight. 
there's this girl from our high school. Her name was Jenny. She graduated 15 years before I was even a freshman. And so Jenny qualified for the state championship. And when you're from a town like Bloomington, you kind of expect excellence like that. But from West Middlesex, Pennsylvania, this was a huge deal. She qualified for the state championship. She's a hero. And so she probably arrived there and is one of those people who are just glad to be there. We were so proud of her. But Jenny made the final. Somehow she just ran out of her mind and qualified for the final of the state championship. And people were shocked. How did Jenny make the final? Jenny from West Middlesex. And so the race, the time for the final race came and they shot the gun. And this is the 200 meter dash. It's half a lap around a track. And for the first 100 meters, Jenny was neck and neck. And people were like, oh my gosh, like Jenny might actually get a medal. And so I don't know what happened. Maybe there are legends about this gale force wind concentrating only in lane eight. But somehow down that home stretch to the finishing tape, Jenny accelerated and she won the race. And people were absolutely shocked. This girl who probably by the skin of her teeth made the state championship, miraculously made the final one. This doesn't happen. And so here we are, these kids 15 years down the road, hearing this story about Jenny, this little girl in lane eight. And I just get goosebumps even today thinking about that. It was so exciting for us to hear because not only was this a story of Jenny's accomplishment, but this is a story of who we could become. If we worked hard, if we had enough ability if the wind blew just right, maybe we could be just like Jenny. And uh, I, I have to tell you, when I read this story of Joseph, part of the reason it's so encouraging to me is because there's a part of me that feels like maybe I can be like Joseph. Maybe God is present with me and he's provident over my situation when it looks like things are chaotic and absolutely uncertain. You know, when we, when we talk about this grand narrative, this story of all of scripture, we have to recognize that this story of Joseph was passed down through the oral tradition about, for about 300 years before Moses even would have recorded it in writing. And so those 300 years between the life of Joseph and the exodus of the Israelites from Egypt were a really difficult time. And so I imagine this family of Israelites sitting around their fire, maybe after dinner, thinking back on their day and just how difficult it was. And maybe the mother or father of that family sitting down and telling their kids, guys, you know what? This is really difficult. And I know that we're wondering where God is in this situation. In the midst of this uncertainty, in the midst of this chaos, we have this promise of why he's put us here and it doesn't seem like it's being fulfilled. But let me tell you a story about Joseph. Let me tell you a story about the way in which God was present in his life, that he was providential over his circumstances when it seemed like everything had gone wrong, when God's promise would not be fulfilled. Let me tell you a story about Joseph. And isn't it our hope that that story will be our story, that that story will be ours, that we will be a people in the midst of our uncertainty, in the midst of chaotic circumstances, will say, God is present. God is acting with providence. And he's going to meet me in this situation with his all-sufficient grace. And you know what? This isn't the kind of story where we need to sit around and try and strike up some sort of feeling of hope that this is going to work out for us. Oh, I really hope that I can have Joseph's story. And you know why? Let me tell you a story about Jesus. Jesus. These words that we read at the beginning of this service 
you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done. The saving of many lives. Is that not the story of, of the cross? The story of Jesus Christ. You intended it for bad, but God intended it for good. The saving of many lives. Jesus Christ crucified on the cross, raised again from the dead, that we who have faith in him are secure. We have that promise. In the midst of our uncertainty, in the midst of our chaos that life can sometimes be, God will fulfill his promises. We aren't promised no pain, but we are promised sufficient grace. We're promised hope. God will not forsake us. He will never turn his back on us, and his grace will be sufficient for us. That is our hope. God has secured this story for us. This story is ours. The story of Joseph, the story of Jesus is ours. God is present. God is providential over our lives. He will provide. And you know what? When we have this story, we have hope. And people might look to our lives. They might look to the way that we're walking through our certain circumstances and think that we're crazy. How can you have hope in the midst of what I see you going through? It is so difficult. And what do we say? We say, let me tell you a story about Jesus. God is present with me. God has provided for me in Christ. He's going to forever and nothing can change that. And so we can share this story of Joseph. We can share this story of Jesus that God, our provider, is present with us. His grace is sufficient with us and he's not going to change. He's never going to let go of those promises. God will be faithful to his word. And so that's my word of encouragement for you. This story is our story. We don't have to conjure up these feelings of hope whenever we're discouraged. We can hold on to these promises that are true. God will be faithful. He has promised that to us, and those promises are ours. And so in the same way that Joseph's experience of God's grace changed him, it transformed him, that he could extend acceptance, forgiveness, and love to the very brothers who sold him into slavery we can do that to those whom God puts in our path. We can bless others because we have been blessed by God. We can extend grace. We can extend forgiveness. We can extend love even when it's not extended to us by those whom we're loving because we have all that we need in Christ. We are blessed to be a blessing. Amen.